if you have a Bible, as I said, you can open up to 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to read a section. Uh, we're going to study chapters 3 and 4 today. Uh, I'm going to read one little section to kind of give us some context, and then we'll jump in. So if you will, stand with me. Uh, we're, we're in 1 Kings chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 3, and I'm going to read down to verse 14. So just 3 to 14 in chapter 3 gives us a little bit of context, and then we'll jump in. Starting in 1 Kings 3, uh, 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place Solomon used to offer a Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings at the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant Uh, King in the high place of David, my father, although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and not have asked for yourself, Uh, for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have counted yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you wisdom and a discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I also give you what you did not ask, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare to you all your days. And if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments, as if your father then, then I will lengthen your days. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, <coughs> we thank you so much for your word. We, we know that it is the thing that uh, will bring about a deep love for Christ. As we read and as we study, Holy Spirit, you teach us, you lead us into truth and so we're absolutely dependent upon you. God, we, we thank you that you would give us your word. We thank you that you would give us the promised Holy Spirit to help us understand your word. And more than that, Lord, we just pray now that um, as we enter our, to our time of looking at your word, seeking and, and a moment to, to try to seek and savor Jesus Christ, that you would be so gracious as to bring these things about. I pray that as we look at the story of Solomon, we look at this um, understanding of wisdom, that we would... We would see the story and understand the story so that we can know your word, but more than anything, that you would uh, point us to Christ, who is our only hope, and that as we see the good news of Jesus and hear the good news of Jesus, though it might be something that we've heard many times, it's something that we need to continually hear, and that you would stir our affections deeply for your son, Jesus. Only you can do this for us. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in First Kings, if you're here for, uh, and haven't been here in a while. 
And uh, just to give you a little bit of an understanding of what's going on, we're in chapter 3, which means I did uh, an intro on the first four verses where we talked about the life of David and First and Second Samuel. We needed to understand who he was and what's going on. And so really First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are kind of one big uh, book to understand that one big book, but nevertheless, they all go together. And first Samuel's building the kingdom. Second Samuel is the arrival of the kingdom. And when I say kingdom, it's the monarchy in Israel. They didn't have that. They asked for it though. They didn't, and they shouldn't have. God still gave it to them anyway. And so we're in first Kings. And when we're in first Kings, we're past the, the arrival of a great monarchy. Now we're in a decline. Uh, and for the rest of first Kings, you'll see a decline. And really second King second Kings is the fall. So we are still in what would be maybe the greatest days of Israel, the, the heyday of Israel, because uh, there's, only, there's only a time where they have two really great kings, David and Solomon, where they have a united kingdom. There's 12 tribes, and, uh, 10 to the north, two to the south, and the king, David, was king over all 12. And then when Solomon came in, he's king over all 12. And as soon as Solomon dies, it's going to split and it's going to be a divided kingdom and then thus the decline. And so the first, first week for us to really kind of understand as we're going through first kings we needed to know who david was because he was you know one of the greatest kings of israel ever and then the second week we looked at um which was two weeks ago we looked at first kings one and two and we saw how solomon began his kingdom and if you look at the very end of chapter two uh there was there's some crazy things that happened no doubt but the last little sentence in chapter two says so the kingdom was established in the hand of of Solomon. And so the, the crazy things that happen and, and when we read it from our side, like, whoo, these are violent. Uh, why are those there? Nevertheless, the big picture was Solomon was establishing his kingdom through bringing about, um, even for some people, death. And the greater picture is that Jebus, Je, Jebus, Jesus, what's wrong with me? Jesus establishes his kingdom by defeating Satan, sin and death for us. And so thus his kingdom is greater. And now what we're going to look at here in chapters three and four is wisdom and this beginning of life of Solomon. So um, as we're looking at it, uh, I want to, I want you to kind of, I want to ask some, a couple introduce introduction questions as we think about wisdom. And it's this, uh, what type of person around you is the kind of person that is worth admiring? What's the kind of person that you know in your life? that is, is worth admiring? Or how do you evaluate in your life some, the significance of someone of, that you should try to get around them and learn from them so that, that you can become you know, a, a more effective Christ follower, etc.? Um, and I think that one of the ways that we know, and we know in James chapter 1, verse 5, as we went through James, is that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God. But nevertheless, uh, it may be a long time before we feel like he's granted ultimate wisdom to us to be able to walk. And so we need people around us that can um, help us. They can be wise people and they can, as they are giving us wisdom, uh, they can help us walk through this daily life. And so think about the kind of person that you think is worth uh, being a mentor to you because it should be someone who's wise. It should be someone who's probably lived a lot longer than you and experienced a lot more than you and the Lord has granted them wisdom. And so we're going to look at chapter three, where we're confronted with the topic of wisdom. And this particular man, as we've read just now, Solomon is confronted with wisdom and given wisdom at a very young age, at a very young age. And not only is he given at a young age, it's the greatest amount of wisdom that one can receive. Um, 
well, not the greatest, but up to this point. So we'll start at verse 1 and 2, and let's, let's get an idea of what, what's going on. Uh, so he's, he started his kingdom, and in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's lots of debate on this. Uh, if he is already kind of starting his, if you know the life of Solomon, he starts off well. You can see it in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. So he, he starts off well, and then you know the, the train comes off the tracks later on in his life. And so some writers are saying this is already, because he had you know, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Uh, this is already the beginning. This is already the beginning. Verse 1, evidence right off. There, here it is. He's already making marriage alliances with, with, with other people. that, And he certainly has a problem with this, marrying those that aren't... <clears throat> Israelites, but some commentators say that perhaps this was just something David had done for him and that he didn't, he didn't bring this about. David did it, um, his father. And it says he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. These are things that he was responsible for. And then it says the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no one had built, um, had built a name for the Lord. And there's, there's debate on this high places talk. So if you look in verse 3 and 4, you're going to wonder, are high places bad or are high places good? Uh, you can read it. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father. And then it says, only he loved to sacrifice and make offerings at the high places. Now, the only can make it sound bad. And it, the only might not necessarily need to be there. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. And you, if you keep reading, uh, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was, uh, the great high place. And now he's going to Gibeon to make these sacrifices at the high place. And so you, you think, oh, the high places must be bad, but nevertheless, let's, let's notice a couple things that the writer tells us directly. He tells us in verse three, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father. So walking in the statutes of David, his father seems to make it think directly. He's telling us sacrifice at the high places isn't necessarily bad. And then you can see this when he went to the high places, notice who met him there. And King went to Gibeon, the sacrifice. So that was great. The high place Solomon used to all, Solomon used to offer burnt offerings there. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, and what did he say? Stop doing it. No, he says, ask me something and I'll give it to you. So when we see this context and we're reading it, we, we kind of, if you already know the story of Solomon, you look back, it's easy, even in that little first part of chapter three, to just automatically assume high place is bad. He's already got it started. He's got this foreign wife. He's already starting it off. And maybe, maybe, but maybe not. All I know is we don't know for sure. In the context, the writer's trying to help us think that things might be just fine right now. He might be okay whenever he's saying he loved the Lord walking in his statutes and he's going to this high place and making the sacrifices and God meets him there. And when God meets him there, he's not, he's not tearing him down. He's not saying this is bad. So um, there's early signs of wisdom. This is the whole point I'm trying to get to in verses 1 through 3 is that there's early signs of wisdom. And there's, there is some controversy on whether this is good or not. But nevertheless, I think that right here in the context, one writer, uh, Paul House, he says, he says something along the lines of it became a bad thing to make sacrifices at the high place, but it wasn't quite yet. And so Solomon isn't necessarily doing anything really bad. I think that's probably what's going on. It becomes that later, but right here in these early years, uh, we are seeing early signs of wisdom that he has. Um, and those two things that we see are that he's politically wise, whether it was set up by his, his father or not, he's politically wise um, because he's making 
alliances with people around him to bring about peace within them. And uh, it's also spiritually wise because you see Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father. Now, these things, these things are good descriptions of him. However, as I've already said, um, if you know anything about Solomon, uh, it doesn't stay that way. It doesn't stay that way. And as I read these verses, um, in, it begins to hint somewhat, at least, towards the coming decadent lifestyle of Solomon. Um, and as I said, they may not be terrible on its face. Uh, as I said, Old Testament scholar um, Dale Ralph Davis says that it's not necessarily that bad. But uh, as I read it right now, when I read it, it makes me sad to think about um, that Solomon started out so well. To know that Solomon started out strong and that he, as he goes towards the end of his life, um, on and on, he makes a wreck of his life because he doesn't continue in what's said of him in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father. He makes a, a mess of his life later on because he doesn't continue in that. And I think that illustrates for us this. Listen, you don't have to be super smart. This guy was m- massively smart and massively wise, and he still really, really makes some poor decisions. I think what it signals for us is that we need also in our life to persevere to the end. We need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength from the beginning and persevere to the end. We need to walk in the statutes of our Lord and continually do that, not being like Solomon and falling away from it eventually. And he had all the potential in the world to be able to not have this happen. And when I read sentences like this, especially about guys like this, it it usually kind of just makes me sad because we know what happens. And I've sat across people in the room where they've ended up like Solomon, where they started out strong. They started out claiming Christ at some point in their life. They've made series of poor decisions, whether it be moral bad decisions or just spiritual bad decisions, believing wrong things. I've sat across the room from from them in the room, begging them not to walk down this path. Like I see it early and I meet with them and I talk with them. I'm like the path that you're on right now, you're still in what we could consider really a believer in Christ. But the path you're on will eventually prove, 1 John 2, 19, that you were never of us. And so don't do this. Don't, don't, don't walk away. Stay. Follow Christ. Be, st- remain a believer. Persevere to the end. And so I've sat in the room begging them not to do this, um, asking them that uh, surely the path that you're going to take is going to eventually cause you to not be the kind of person that loves God and walks in his statutes pleading with him and telling him straightforward, the decision that you're making right now will be the beginning of where you will ensure that at some point, because you don't persevere, you're going to go to hell. Straightforward. And then had them tell me, I'm going to make this decision anyway. This is what I want to do right now. Or I've had people tell me, I know that you're a believer in Christ and I know that that's what you should say to me. And so thank you for being consistent with uh, believing what you say and telling me that I'll go to hell by doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I don't understand that response, but nevertheless, um, it's, it's difficult to see people start out well that you love, that you care for, and walk down a path of walking away from loving the Lord and walking in his statutes. And I think for us then, therefore, it's this. We should not be, ever be the kind of people that do this. You have 
the Lord has blessed us with a church, which means you have family members around you that care and love you, that care for you and love you and don't, don't want this. And the Lord has blessed you that if things like this start happening in your life and they come to you, or if I come to you, or if the elders come to you, it's a good thing for us to say, Hey, I'm, I'm seeing something in your life that makes me nervous. Listen, let's talk. Don't walk down this path because there will become a point to where you couldn't call yourself a Christ follower anymore. And so I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I just believe first John two nineteen. but nevertheless here, as we see this, um, it's a great caution for us then, therefore, to make sure that we are the kind of people that persevere to the end. That we do love the Lord our God with our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength our entire life and walk in his statutes. Now, we're not at that place yet with Solomon. That's not where he is. Where we are right now is that he's walking with the Lord. Now, as I framed that discussion, I framed it with people you might know that are doing that. But let's just make sure uh, you internalize this as well. And knowing that you can look back at your own life. And in your own life, maybe you had a moment uh, where you really walked with the Lord, your God, better than you do now. You, sometimes it's easier when you're younger. When you're 15-year-old to 25-year-old and you've got tons of time and tons of energy. Um, and life hasn't kick the trash out of you yet. And so things have just been awesome that it's so much easier to walk with the Lord. And I'm going to fast everything for the next year. And I'm going to read my Bible. And you do read your Bible for, you know, every day for three hours a day, because you have that kind of time. And you just look back on that kind uh, that period of your life of that year or five years. And you're like, that's the time where I just, man, I really walk with Christ. I do now, but it's just different. And I'm saying, um, this text warns us to persevere to the end and to say, uh, as difficult as it might be, you can't, you can't go back and be 15 again or 25 again. You just can't. You are where you are in life and it's the way it is. You know, life gets busy, the harder, the older you get and life gets more difficult, the older you get because things happen. You, your mom passes away or you have children that are, that are difficult, etc. Um, or you have disappointments to where you never get married and you're sad and you want to finally get married and you're not. There's all kinds of things that happen. Um, but let this text serve for us, not just to think of other people, but also to think of our own lives and think, um, what can I do right now to think about how I used to walk with the Lord and walk with him again like I, like I did then? It's not going to be the exact same. It's not plug and play. It's not apples to apples. It's going to be different as you're older. But nevertheless, um, we also should have wisdom to want to look at this and say, this is the kind of life I want to live. I want to love the Lord my God and walk in his statutes. This doesn't justify you. You've already been justified. This sanctifies you. This sanctifies you. So that's the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3, these early signs of wisdom. Then we see the prayer for wisdom in verses 4 through 15. And I would say this might be the theme of chapter 3 and perhaps even the theme of chapter 3 and 4 is this one little statement. Uh, and I circled it in my Bible. God's okay if you want to do that. It's in verse 5. Um, in the middle, well, actually it's the last five, one, two, three, four, five, six words of verse 5. Where God comes to him and says, ask what I shall give you. I think this is the theme of verses uh, chapters three and four. And this is amazing. This is unbelievable. 
Now, if I came to you and said, ask me what I should give you. I mean, you kind of already set categories in your mind of where I am in my station in life and my wealth capacity. And you can say, okay, well, he could probably give me a TV or a, you know, a PlayStation. I don't know what you want. Something like that. But that's not what's happening here, right? It's not a fellow man that you're going to. This is God with every resource in the world and every idea and, and unlimited coming to him. And not only that, he invented the ideas of ideas and inventions. He invented everything coming to him and looking at him and said, ask me what I should give you. That's, that's amazing that God came to him and said this. And Solomon could literally, um, and I think that word's overused, and here it's not. He literally could ask for anything that's not decadent or immoral. And so um, God comes to him and says, ask me what you want. And uh, this is what happens. Solomon, verse 3, Love the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings at the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and asked God, says this, Ask what I shall give you. And then Solomon answered him, you have shown great steadfast love. So let's, let's stop here for a second and see, this is Solomon talking to God. So this is, in all intents and purposes, what we would call prayer. This is Solomon talking to God. And so uh, this is uh, amazingly sovereign because um, God sovereignly ordained Chris Miller to preach last week on the Lord's Prayer. And so this week, I'm going to, as we look at verses uh, 4 through 15, I'm going to Take a little insert, and we're also going to continue to talk about prayer. So the Lord sovereignly ordained that Chris would, unbeknownst to either one of us, talk about prayer. And then week two, we're going to talk about prayer again because clearly God wants us to talk about prayer a lot because maybe uh, we're not doing it the way that we should or as much as we should. There's a good chance that when things like that happen, God's sovereignly speaking to us and saying, you need to be the kind of people that are praying. Like, so when we have corporate prayer, um, you should come. You should be a part of praying together as a church. This is the first Wednesday of every month. But nevertheless, here we are. This is what Solomon says. Um, so the incentive uh, that we see that he's going to, the reason why. So if you might want to ask yourself, why should I pray? Why should I be the kind of person that wants to pray? He tells us the incentive. The incentive is because God is generous. The reason why you should pray is because you don't serve or worship a stingy God or a God who lacks resources. You worship and serve a generous God who lacks nothing. He lacks nothing. So one of the reasons, one of the incentives that we should pray is because God is a giving God and he loves to give enormous generosity, enormous uh, generous gifts to us. So you can see that because in 5b, he comes to him and he looks at Solomon and he could have said anything. Why are you sacrificing at the high places? Or, all right, it's getting started. You better do a good job. None of that, right? He just comes to him and says, ask me for something. Sacri- or showing to us, symbolizing his, his generosity. And whenever he, we see when after he asks, we can see the generosity, which with the overflows. Whenever in, he asks for wisdom and he says, okay, I'll give it to you. But watch this in verse 13. And I'm also going to give you what you didn't ask for. Both riches and honor so that no king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father, David, I will lengthen your days. 
So this is amazing generosity. You didn't ask for stuff, but just because I'm God and I'm generous, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of stuff you didn't even ask for. So if you're looking for an incentive, inside this little verse is here in 3 through, uh, 4 through 15. Where are we at? Four, yeah, 4 through 15. Um, one of the reasons why you should pray, something we learn from this, is because the God that we serve and worship is quite generous. He's quite generous. The next thing that we see in here is that there's a foundation to our prayers. The foundation to our prayers is God's faithfulness. Look what it happens in verse 6. He says, God comes to him and says, ask for something. Just ask. Watch what, Sol- watch what Solomon does. And Solomon said, here it is. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an upright heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. So God's been keeping him and giving him a son to sit on the throne. And now, Lord, you have made your servant a king in place of David, my father, although I'm just a little child. And here it is. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great multitude. Watch this language. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So God says, tell me what you want. What you really, not sorry. So then he, what does he do? I don't know what that came in my head. What does he do? He doesn't tell him what he wants. He just stops and says, before I do, I should just tell you, God, you're faithful. You've been faithful to my dad and you've been faithful to me. You put me here. You are a faithful God. And he even uses language that we should notice that something that we could, re- we should recognize from Genesis. You should see it when he says um, in verse eight. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Let's, let's flip over one chapter and you'll see the similar kind of language. Look at 420. Look at 420. There's a description about people in Israel. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. And they ate and drank and they were happy. As many as by the sand by the sea. Do we understand this Abrahamic covenant language that's being, being given to us? What I mean is, a long time before this, God came to Abraham and, and, and said, Abraham, he was just a pagan. He, he, he was just walking around. And he said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of my people. And I want to tell you, once uh, Israel is established, they're going to just be, because of you and your line, people all from you are just going to be so numerous that they're like the sand on the seashore. And that promise that he made is now coming to fruition in the eyes of Solomon. I'll just give you a couple places where that kind of language that we just read in 420 and 3.8 um, was promised because now it is becoming true and how faithful God is. Genesis 22.17. God's telling them, this is all before it's all set up. There's, there's, there's no Israelites. There's just Abraham. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars in the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And of your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and your offspring shall all the nation and of your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. We also see it in Genesis 15, 5. This is what it says. He, he told him to go outside and he said, look toward the heavens, number the stars. And if you're able to number them, then he said, so shall be your offspring. That's how many people will be, there will be when it comes to Israelites. He also says it in Genesis 13, 16. I will make offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. 
Also, we see it um, in uh, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in the families of all the earth shall be blessed. So these are all promises made to Abraham in the beginning. And Solomon, whenever he's seeing God's asking him, tell me what you want. Instead of answering, he just recounts the faithfulness of God, how God has promised these things to Abraham. And now they're coming. They, they are true. They are true. And so he recounts the faithfulness of God. Which means for us, the foundation of our prayers. We talked about why we pray. Now we're talking about the foundation. Why we, here's another reason why we pray is this. Because God is faithful. He answers, he makes promises, and he keeps them. And so we should notice, just as Solomon does, that he's been faithful to his father. And he knows that he's going to be faithful to him. And therefore, he's going to be faithful to you. Because you're his child as well. You're his son. You're his daughter if you're in Christ. And remember, notice... Solomon doesn't start with what he wants. He starts with recounting the faithfulness of God, which means this could be a good model for you. A way that you pray is in the beginning before you just go, and me too, before we go through our laundry list of needs, which is fine. It's fine. God is not overwhelmed by our list of needs. He's not put off by it. He's not like eye roll, like you're wanting a big other thing again. He's your dad. He loves you. He wants to know what's going on. It's fine to say that. I don't like it when pastors tell people not to give laundry lists. It's not, it's not wise. It's, you should. God is not ever put off by you. But also recount his faithfulness in your life. Think about how he's been so faithful to you. I think it's a good thing to start with. And so he does this. And Solomon sees and knows that I can pray to God because he can be trusted. And you can pray because he can be trusted. And then he also shows um, something that's key in prayer, which is um, God's people. So one of the reasons why we should pray also is because God wants us to be thoughtful about his people. This is what Solomon does. Um, You can see it in verse 6. So After he tells him uh, that he's faithful, he also says that there's people around me, God, that I, I need to... I need to know how to serve. You can see it in verse 7. Oh, Lord, you have made your servant a king in place of David, your father. And I'm just a little child. I don't know how to go out and come in. Your servant is in the midst of all these people, a chosen people, so many to be numbered. And I don't know how to do it. Give your, therefore, servant an understanding mind to govern your people. Basically, Solomon's saying, he's pouring out his heart to God in prayer. And he's saying, I'm a child. There's lots of people here. I have no idea what I'm doing. I need your help because... I care about your people like you care about your people. Not to the same degree, but nevertheless, I want to. And so you care about about those made in your image. And so I should. And so help me know how to do it. This is an amazing thing for us to pray for. God deeply cares for his people. And therefore, we should as well. And so prayer is a key instrument in helping us understand to know how to care for his people. So when he says... Tell me what you want. It reveals a ton about Solomon's heart because it's totally other-centered and not self-centered. I want to help your people, God. That's what I want. I want to help your people. And so Solomon's heart here is revealed. Though, as I said, it definitely um, goes off, the train goes off the tracks later on in his life. But in the beginning, he wants to please God and he wants to serve, he wants to serve God's people. And so our prayers should want to do the same. We should want to, in our prayers, as we talk about ourselves, which is fine, also 
show in our own hearts and determine in our own minds that we want to serve God's people as well through prayer. God, help me know how to serve these people and care for them like you do. This is what Solomon prays. And then here's the goal of prayer. We see it in the first couple words of verse 10. The goal of, of prayer. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for this. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for this. And God said, because you have asked for this and not asked for yourself for long life or riches, um, I'm going to give you that. And then for, moreover, he actually says, and I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. Our aim, and really not just in prayer, but the aim of all of our life is to live in such a way that's pleasing to God. To live in such a way that's pleasing to God. And one of the goals of prayer is to pray in such a way that's pleasing to God. And what, is Sol- what does God do? We can see because what Solomon asked for was pleasing to God, he gives him um, what he asked for, as it says, so that none like you has been before and none shall arise after you. As a matter of fact, we can read a, a, a more in-depth discussion of Solomon's wisdom in chapter 4. If you look over at chapter 4 with me, verse 29, you see a, a longer kind of understanding of the wisdom of Solomon. It says in verse 429, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people in the east and all of the pe- wisdom of e- Egypt, for who is wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan, wiser than He-Man. I mean, wiser than He-Man and all the masters of the universe. Um, if 80s reference, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, then Calco and Darda. Now, I don't know who these people are, right? But apparently, when this book was written, everybody knew that those guys. And everybody's like, those guys are crazy wise. And he's saying Solomon's wiser than He-Man and Darda and all these people. Like that's how wise he is. And the sons of Mahon. His fame was in all the surrounding nations. In all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. That's difficult. That's difficult to do. He wrote 1,005 songs. Who can write one song, right? He wrote 1,005. He spoke... He spoke of the trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. Basically, he's just saying a wide breadth of knowledge. Like he understood a lot of stuff from art to science all around. I mean, this was an amazingly wise person. That's how God um, answered the prayer of Solomon. So it pleased God for him to say, I want to serve your people and I want to do it well. I need wisdom because I'm just a child. I don't know what I'm doing, God. And God said, okay, and I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. And so uh, his ability to worship God was quite enhanced. And so as Dale Rife Davis says, the goal of God, the goal of worship is to please God who is our only true audience. And so this is, this is the case in prayer. We want, to, we want to please God with our prayers. The goal of prayer is to seek um, to please God. So those four things, in case you want to know, the incentive to pray is because God's generous. Uh, the foundation of prayer is God's faithfulness. Uh, the, one of the reasons we pray is because we want to care for God's people like Solomon. And lastly, one of the goals of prayer is to please the Lord. Now, that's section two, prayer for wisdom. Now we're actually going to see the use of wisdom. In the rest of chapter three, we're going to see how he does this. You've probably heard this story a billion times, um, but nevertheless, let's look at it. Verse 16 through 28, the use of wisdom. We'll go through it decently quick in case you've never heard it, but uh, I'll, I'll point out a couple things here and there. 
Um, probably not too much that you've not ever heard before, but maybe so. The two prostitutes came. We're in, um, we're in verse 16. Let's just notice one thing before we do that. So what, look at verse 9. I want to make sure you see this. Um, Give your servant, uh, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. That's what he wants to know how to do. And then this is what he's going to do. He's going to learn how to govern their people. This is just one story. And verse 16 is, okay, here's an illustration of how he does it. Verse 16, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. And there was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. We'll stop there for a second. And basically what we're wanting to understand is this. Um, men generally were not uh, visiting prostitutes when they were super pregnant. They just weren't. Um, and so the point that the writer's trying to make is they were truly alone. And so since they were truly alone uh, and they're both prostitutes and so... Uh, you, you don't know which one's going to tell the truth. It's basically what you're, the writer's trying to get at you to understand. You don't know which one's telling the truth. No one's there because men aren't visiting. You don't know. You don't know. There's no way that anybody knows which one's telling the truth. That's why he reiterates that they were only those two in the house. And so one of them's telling the truth. The other one isn't. And just by sheer conversation, you're not going to know which one it is. You're just not going to know because they're both coming to you saying that this is their child. Um, <clears throat> that's what he's trying to get at when he tells us that. Verse 19. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him and she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. And when I woke in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. So she, she realized that the children had been switched. She knew what her child looked like, basically. Verse 22. <clears throat> but the other one said, no, the living child is mine and the child, the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. So what, what we're trying to see here is there's no discernible way that you're going to be able to tell because presumably one's lying, one's not. But there's no way for you to know which one's lying. Because one's not more truthful than the other historically. Um, verse 23. This is what happens. The king said, The one says, This son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, No, your son's dead. But my son is the living one. So here's, a, here's, the, here's the problem. So I'm going I'm to solve it. The king said, Bring me a sword. And so a sword was brought to him. And the king said, We're going to divide this child in two. Give half to one lady and give half to the other. And so, you know, they both get, they both get half. Um, now, that's not what he's really going to do, right? He's exercising wisdom to see which one of the women uh, will respond with wanting to spare the child's life. And he knows that that's the mother. So he's, he's just using wisdom. He's not going to do that really. Verse 26, then the mother whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, just give her the child and by no means put him to death. You can see here a deep love. I would rather him be raised by someone else than him die because I want him to live. That's the mom. Then the king, um, verse 26, uh, then the woman whose son 
was alive, said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O oh my Lord, give the, the living child by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Obviously, this is not the mother. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. Now, the wisdom isn't after it happened. Like, oh, okay, look how wise Solomon is. He saw the reaction. The wisdom is, bring me the sword. That's the, that's the wise part. Because, I mean, I wouldn't think of that. I was like, I don't know how to tell. I don't know. Like, this, the wise part is to say, all right, I'm just going to cut the baby in half. Like, who thinks of that? Not me. Um, but nevertheless, he, he was able to, the point that, that we're trying to see, there was no truth to be found. And in Solomon's wisdom, he drew the truth out of the situation. That situation. This is truly amazing wisdom. God had granted him what he had asked for uh, in point number two, which means it was ultimately the work of God, not the work of Solomon, that exposed the lady that was crying or that was lying. God, he knew which one it was, and so it was ultimately the work of God. Charles Spurgeon tells a similar kind of story. He said, we shouldn't assume um, that all the clear work of God is confirmed to the king of Israel. Once, one time, as in the work wasn't necessarily just done by Solomon, it was ultimately done by God. Uh, he says, once when Charles Spurgeon was preaching at Exeter Hall, he suddenly departed from his subject and pointed to a certain direction and said, young man, um, these gloves that you're wearing, they haven't been paid for. You stole them from your employer. After the service, a young man, pale and agitated, came to the vestry and begged an interview with Charles Spurgeon. When he admitted, he placed a pair of gloves on the table and through tears confessed, it's the first time I've ever robbed my master. I'll never do it again. Just don't expose me, sir, will you? It would kill my mother if she heard that I'd become a thief. Sometimes the way of wisdom is so uncanny that whether by the Israelite king or a British preacher, it's clear that it's really God there exposing us. So the point is, Solomon, God, uh, Charles Spurgeon, whoever, they're all, this wisdom, they're all just being used by God. God is the ultimate one who is showing this person is the one that's telling the truth. This person is not. And so um, the same is true for us then, therefore. Um, obviously, we can't do it in the same way as Solomon, but God can certainly use us to bring truth to people where, where there's no truth to be found around them. We can... We can pray at James 1, 5 and seek for wisdom. So, and when we do, we can, be filled, we can pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians five eighteen. And when we have um, these things given to us, then we are able to go. And where people are not able to find truth, we can lead them into the truth. What are the things that we can lead them into? We can lead them into that th- this Bible is his word. We can lead them into the truth that Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. There's literally no other way into salvation besides Jesus. We can lead them into the truth that... Um, to follow, as it says here in verse 3, uh, to love the Lord and walk in his statutes. That's really the only satisfying way to live. I know the world tries to help you think or make you think that there's another way that's really satisfactory and fun and really fulfilling if you live that way. And we can come and say, actually, that's not true. That's not true at all. There's really only one satisfying, truly down deep, satisfying way to live. And that's by following Christ. These are the things that we can do whenever we want to bring the truth to bear to them, bear to them. And you can see what happens here in this story when Solomon does this. Verse 28, and all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. They were absolutely amazed at his wisdom. And the same thing happens uh, at the end of chapter four, chapter 434. Um, 
after the, he gave this description of the wisdom, look what it says in 434. And people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. People were drawn towards it. They were drawn towards it saying, we got we to see this. We, this is amazing. This is, this is amazing. And I just want to ask this. Is it, is it too crazy to think that this still can happen? We, we can't obviously, well, maybe not obviously. We, we probably won't ever be granted the wisdom of Solomon, right? But is it still cr- too crazy to think that the beauty of Jesus could be shown so uh, powerfully in our church that people would come from all over just to see and understand this unbelievable power of Jesus. Is it, is it crazy to think that they would stand in awe of our King perceiving that he is the one who is ultimately loving and merciful and, and full of justice? Is it too crazy to think that that would happen anymore? I don't think it is. When they heard, when we hear the message of Jesus Um, he can save sinners just like us. And so uh, I don't think it's crazy to say that this can happen again and that people can come and stand in awe of the king. So let's close with this. Um, Number four, the promise of wisdom. So in all of chapter three and four, we've seen the promise of wisdom. Uh, But I want to conclude by reading um, in Isaiah chapter 11, Uh, something that's describing Christ before he comes and letting us see the similarities of what's mentioned of Solomon and how Jesus is the truer and better Solomon. Look, if you want to just listen, I'm in Isaiah chapter 11, verse one. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, Jesse is David's father. And then David is Solomon's father. And so it's easy for us to think, oh, he must be talking about Solomon here. Notice what he says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This sounds a lot like verse three of chapter three. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity from the meek of the earth. And so immediately, this could be talking about Solomon. But um, ultimately, it's not just talking about Solomon likely. It's talk, it, not, not likely, but it is. It's talking about Jesus. As Solomon is commended to be one with judgment and discernment and wisdom, as Isaiah 11 and 1 Kings 3 and 4 says, there is a truer and greater king than Solomon, and his name is Jesus. So back to the beginning of the sermon when I said, uh, reading how Solomon started makes me sad. And I said, perhaps this doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be me. We don't have to um, start out so well and then end where we don't persevere. And here's, here's why. Because we should, every one of us, even right now, if you haven't done it, throw ourselves onto the mercy of King Jesus. 
This, this is him. The spirit of the Lord rested upon Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he doesn't judge by what his eyes see or decides to speak what his ears hear. He sees far deeper than that. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. We are poor in spirit and with righteousness, he gives us his righteousness if we confess our sin Ask the Lord to forgiveness, and then we become his children. And so what we should do, and the only thing that we should do, is throw ourselves on the mercy of King Jesus. He's the king with true wisdom and understanding. He's the king of full knowledge. He's the king that can be trusted. He's the king that we can go to and pray to. He's the king that sees deeper than on the surface. He sees even deeper into your own heart than you can see into your own heart. He understands you better than you understand yourself. He's the only king that truly cares about us. There is no other king that cares about you like King Jesus. He's the only righteous king that can actually forgive us of our sin and literally give us his righteousness. Throw yourself onto the mercy of Jesus, the only righteous good king there is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of the beginning of Solomon, but really the story that points us to the greatest king ever, the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we, uh, we pray that as we think about the gospel of Jesus, that you came to the world, you lived a perfect life and you went to the cross, obeying God, the father willingly to die for us in our place. And that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to call us your son and daughter, to make us a part of your family, to declare us righteous, and then fill us with your spirit so that we can walk, love you and walk in your statutes and be sanctified. And so I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would hear the good news this morning that Christ died for them and respond in faith. And for those that are believers in Christ, that as they are reminded of the good news that we have, be merciful King, the King of all Kings as our God and our savior. As they hear that their hearts would be full and their affections would be stirred for Jesus. We praise in Jesus name. Amen.